This week on Life and Faith. In a country like the UK, which is religiously quite apathetic, really, uh, you've got to be quite serious about religion in order to be an atheist. The systems that we trust in to know have broken down. You know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house. But I've learned that even when it doesn't go well, I can be okay. What's the best way to understand the world and to live in it? Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. And I'm Natasha Moore, and this is our final episode for this term, which also makes it our Easter episode. I can't believe it's Easter already. And today we're tackling an old chestnut. It's a phrase that really rolls off the tongue. It's the idea, and you hear it here and there, that Jesus was a great moral teacher, with the subtext, of course, that Jesus was only a great moral teacher. Some historical figures have gone enthusiastically (laughs) down this path. Um, Probably most famous is the American founding father, Thomas Jefferson, who decided that he couldn't accept the supernatural elements of the story, the miracles, the resurrection. And so he literally cut and pasted the passages he liked. He got scissors (laughs) and paste and put them end to end to make his own version of the Christian Gospels. How big was this physically? Well, I think it's only, so it only ends up being about a thousand texts, a thousand oh, verses once you from the out, New it's, Testament. It's, yeah. it's, it's a lot shorter. <laughs> it's, you know, selective. Okay. Um, but apparently it was given for many years at the start of the 20th century, it was given to members of Congress, this Jefferson Bible, which is yeah. kind of interesting to think about in what was quite a religious country. Yeah, that's strange. Jefferson called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. The morals bit is in there. Though mostly today, we just refer to it as the Jefferson Bible. A version of this for the 21st century came out recently. It's by Julian Bagini. He's a British philosopher who we've spoken to before, actually, on Life and Faith, on the topic of free will. And his new book is called The Godless Gospel, Was Jesus a Great Moral Teacher? And Bagini produces his own version of the life and teaching of Jesus without any of the religious elements. Does that person have anything to teach us? And there must be something in the air or in the water right now, (laughs) um, because someone who in some ways is asking that same question is Jonathan Pennington. He's a New Testament professor at Southern Seminary in Kentucky. Uh, He's written a book called Jesus the Great Philosopher. And his Jesus also has a lot to teach us about how to live. Now, Easter seems like a good time to hear from both of them about what it means for Jesus to be a great moral teacher or great philosopher. Because the Easter story of Jesus dying on a Roman cross and rising from the grave may not square easily with that picture of Jesus. You spoke with Jonathan Pennington, Simon. I did, and you spoke with Julian Bagini, right? I did, and here he is explaining how he came to write the Godless Gospel. I've got a Christian background. I didn't live in a particularly religious family, but they sent me to a Catholic primary school because that's what a good Italian son does for his mother. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I did take things seriously, and even in my secondary school, which was not a Catholic school, I was a Christian, and I, I actually voluntarily went to church, eventually going to a Methodist church rather than a Catholic one. So I had a lot of interest in religion and, you know, when I I became an atheist in a country like the UK, which is religiously quite apathetic, really, 
you've got to be quite serious about religion in order to be an atheist. <laughs> uh, you find yourself often sort of, you know, a bit um, in close company with believers. But the point about this book was that I was tired of this kind of platitude people trot out of saying that they don't believe Jesus is a son of God, but they believe he's a great moral teacher. And I just, after hearing this about the hundredth time, I thought, is this true? Can we take this seriously? You know, as you know, C.S. Lewis very famously said, you, you can't do that. You can't sort of like say, oh, well, you know, Jesus, great moral teacher, because the Jesus of the Gospels, um, you know, says so many things about being the son of God and claims to perform miracles and so forth, that if you don't believe he was the son of God, then you've got to believe you're some kind of lunatic <laughs> or monster. But I think Lewis kind of presents a false choice there. Um, what you could believe is that, you know, the teachings of Jesus, we don't know who the historical Jesus was. These teachings are interesting, even if you strip away the supernatural. So it's a kind of a, it's a hypothetical thought experiment. And I just wanted to investigate that seriously and to really see if there was anything to be saved from the teachings of Jesus if you don't believe he was uh, divine in any way. So reading the Gospels, uh, what impresses you about Jesus and what maybe doesn't sit so well with you of his teaching? Well, I think one thing which makes him very useful, I think, for our day and age is that we kind of live in an age of self-development and self-improvement, or so we think. But it's a rather narcissistic kind. And I think one of the great challenges he presents is to ask us to take seriously the idea that our greatest task is to become the best versions of ourselves morally and ethically. So, you know, not just to sort of you know, become great at whatever we do in our profession or something like that, but to really uh, become good. And I think that's really an important challenge because in order to do that, you do have to kind of massively devalue a lot of things that our culture massively values, such as obviously material wealth, but also actually family, family life. You know, Jesus repeatedly tells people not to put their family above the most important things in the world, which is which is very interesting given how many Christian denominations around the world today really stress family values. Um, what I least like about him is, I, I do think that at the end of the day, it's too unworldly. He's a, he's a world renouncer. He's in that kind of tradition of where, you know, we, we have to really renounce the things of the world. And I know that people say, well, yes, but he did drink wine and all this kind of thing, but only in the spirit of not refusing hospitality. <laughs> he clearly didn't think one should seek these things out. And for me, he's kind of too ascetic. He may not be as ascetic as John the Baptist was, but I believe that, you know, the world is a incredibly rich place and the things it offers in terms of enjoyment, we should enjoy and pay the price for that, which is the disappointment and sadness that these things won't last. I mean, I suppose if you cut out the miracles, then one of the things you lose is the account of Jesus turning water into wine, which is very wine and party affirming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that is true. That is true. Yes. But um, I think one thing you sort of find when you look at the gospel teachings is, of course, you know, Jesus was quite enigmatic in lots of ways. And, and he said lots of things which appear to kind of possibly even contradict each other. And that's why it's always easy to pick on one thing he said or one thing he did. 
and to try and build a case around it. And what I tried to do was to look at the pattern, look at the direction. And I think that, you know, what the wedding feast at Canaan suggests, and of course we've got to remember as well that most wine at that age was much weaker than the kind of full-bodied Australian reds we get today, <laughs> punching it, you know, 14% proof. Um, clearly, if you look at the, the life as a whole, you know, he clearly was not someone who thought we should go out and really revel in the pleasures of the flesh. We shouldn't despise these things and... He didn't stop people doing them. And at a wedding, maybe it was even important to have them. But, uh... <laughs> um, you are yourself being selective and kind of picking and choosing the patterns that you want to make Jesus into. Um, you include in the book a sort of rewrite of the Gospels without the supernatural. So how kind of Thomas Jefferson inspired was that? I hope I only picked and choose in the sense that that was the idea to strip out the supernatural, etc., etc. In terms of the interpretation, I did try genuinely to see what was most dominant. Yeah, the Jefferson inspiration, it wasn't inspired by Jefferson. Uh, in fact, you know, when I first had the idea, I didn't even know about the Jefferson uh, Bible, I don't think. So, yes, Jefferson and Tolstoy. Other people have done similar things in the past. But first of all, of course, the bulk of the book is a discussion of these things, not just the edited version of it. But the reason I didn't just use the Jefferson Bible or just use the Tolstoy version was firstly because I think they do keep things in which I wouldn't have kept in. But For secondly, example. I think, that I, I, well, I, I remember, forget, I think healings, I think there are some healings in, and also God talk, actually. There's only God talk in, in Jefferson. So it wasn't quite the edit I would have done. Uh, but also I think, you know, the, the process of doing the editing is part of the, intellectual inquiry for me do you see what I mean if you're going to do this you have to go through it yourself and decide mm. what to keep and not to keep and obviously there are questions of judgment there I mean for example I, I did at one point consider whether or not I should have some healings in there because there are ways of understanding those stories in which there's no requirement to believe a literal miracle took place and I think again the symbolic meaning of these things is, is very interesting and it's been suggested to me I was quite persuaded by the idea that one of the main things Jesus was doing with the healings was returning people to society. Uh, people have the skin diseases and the blood. They're often outcasts. And by saying you are healed, he's kind of bringing them back into the fold. And although I thought that was true, when I actually did go back and look at them again, it seemed very obviously the case that whatever the symbolic meaning, there was also a very literal healing taking place. I mean, it should be said as well, a, a different project someone could do uh, which again people have done versions of anyway, is to look at the whole thing but simply assume that everything supernaturally is metaphorical or, or figurative. Um, that would be a different project. Obviously Christians are not likely to accept your like godless gospel. They tend to be mm. quite keen on the God part. But <laughs> do you think that there are things in your reading of these texts that are so important to Christians that they might appreciate or benefit from? Yes, I think so. And I, there's some evidence that, you know, I've had very nice responses from lots of Christians. I spoke to Christian theologians and philosophers when writing the book as well as part of the research to try and get their views. I think there are a couple of things. I think, first of all, the very idea that it's taking Jesus seriously is, is something to be welcomed. Um, because, you know, there are lots of people who would say we should just forget all of this. It's a load of old nonsense. I do think that, you know, Jesus is a much more challenging figure than he is often presented to be. And a lot of the challenges he presents, I think Christians 
find it quite hard to really look square in the eye. If you're a Christian in a developed country like uh, the UK or Australia, then almost certainly you're going to have a degree of material wealth, which is very clearly more than Jesus would really want you to. And I think it's uncomfortable for people to really sort of recognise that. And also the great emphasis on family as well. I think Jesus's repeated critiques of family is a deep challenge too. Um, Also, though, they might welcome it because non-Christians who read it will be reminded that Jesus is a challenging thinker and a challenging moral teacher. And so, you know, the demand that he get taken a bit more more seriously is something you would hope Christians would welcome. But of course, they're not going to buy the whole thing because without the divine aspect, it is different. It is a different teaching. It's a different gospel as a whole. And for Christians, that is a subtraction, not an addition. So are you personally going back and reading your version of the gospel? Is it feeding into your life? Does it change how you live? No, I'm not going back and rereading, but it's certainly um, become now part of my, I don't know what you'd call it, part of some of my reference points. You know, I do find myself in discussions talking about certain issues, bringing up what Jesus might have said about things like forgiveness, for example. I think the teaching on forgiveness is, is very interesting and you know, I'm persuaded by the idea that the primary function of forgiveness, as Jesus teaches it, is, is reconciliation and bringing people together. It's not about the granting of absolution. You know, It's not something you do to somebody, as it were. It's something you do with them, and it only works when you, you do it with them. And I think that kind of understanding of forgiveness is useful. And I, I, So if I'm talking about forgiveness now, I'm going to be talking about Jesus. This is Life and Faith, and that is Julian Bagini, author of The Godless Gospel. Was Jesus a great moral teacher? And that is a question that has occupied and continues to occupy great minds. Jonathan Pennington's book, Jesus the Great Philosopher, tackles the topic from a different perspective. Pennington is a professor of New Testament, and he thinks you miss something essential when you strip out the supernatural elements of the Gospels. That's right. But he agrees that Jesus is a great philosopher too. It sounds really funny uh, to describe Jesus as a philosopher. And and a lot of people might think that that sounds like that's somehow diminishing the Christian understanding of Jesus. But it's not. As I always like to say, uh, Jesus is more than a philosopher, according to Christianity. He's God incarnate. He is uh, the king of the universe. He is the one who dies on behalf of people's sins. Those are all the Christian understanding of Jesus. But he's not less than a philosopher, as I like to say. That is, he's also teaching us how to live well, both now and for eternity. And so he's giving wisdom. He's clearly shown in the Bible to be a wisdom teacher in a very practical and personal way. And so we shouldn't just think about Christianity as something that's just for a future heavenly existence. Christianity is something that is very practical for today as well. You identify some important aspects of life that we'd want to get right. We might call it wisdom if we're going to flourish. There's things like you go through a whole lot of these, like our emotions, how to deal with those. Our relationships, obviously critically important. Our desires, uh, our sense of what it is to be human, all those things. You would argue that Jesus has something to say to each of those categories. Absolutely. And, you know, this is one of the 
things that's that was a great joy in, in working over the last 10 years or so on these ideas in this book, uh, Jesus the Great Philosopher, is to just come to see myself that Christianity, Jesus himself and Christianity really does speak to these real life practical issues like emotions, like what are emotions? How do we process them? Are they good? Are they bad? Are they just chemicals or is there something different going on? And so that's one area where it's been really neat to go back to the Bible. So I've studied a lot on psychology and neurology and all these kind of things. And ancient philosophy had a lot to say about emotions. And then I've, after learning all that, I've gone back and kind of reread the Bible with this set of questions. Like, what does the Bible have to say about emotions? And I've been so pleasantly surprised to find that the Bible's vision, these ancient documents have a very nuanced, very sophisticated even view of emotions, that they're important. They're part of what it means to be human. They're not to be denied, but they're also something that can be educated. They can be trained in certain ways, and we need to do that so that we can experience the flourishing that we long for. We pick up on relationships. What would Jesus have to offer people in terms of, of relationships, how we do well together? Yeah, it's a great question. So again, if I can put it in the context of ancient philosophy, so the ancient philosophers, some famous names that most of us have heard of, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, and then some of the Stoics like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, they actually thought about this question a lot, like what makes for happiness? And a big answer they came up with was friendship and friendship all the way up to like how to structure society. If you think of Plato, wrote his famous Republic and Aristotle, his politics, they're saying if you want to be happy as an individual and as a society, you really have to be very thoughtful about how you structure relationships. So once again, once you sort of read all that and then you go back to the Bible and ask, what does the Bible have to say about this? What does Jesus have to say? You'll see that, wow, there is a lot of discussion, maybe particularly in the New Testament, about how to live in relationships of love and forgiveness and faithfulness, both in marriage and in friendship, uh, how to structure a group of people together. This is what Christians call the church, that there are lots of instructions about living together in a set of relationships that are, again, marked by love and mercy and kindness and gentleness and self-control. So again, when you go to the Bible with this set of universal human questions, you once again find that Jesus has a lot to say He's not just talking about big, abstract theological ideas. He's really drilling down to these heart issues of what kind of relationships should we have with each other. Now, you're someone who you know, is obviously deeply embedded in the sort of biblical worldview and so on. But what do you make of contemporary kind of secular attempts to gain the flourishing life? You know, think of movements like the well-being movement, positive psychology. There's, there's a whole host of different ways in which contemporary people who are not part of a, a religious community necessarily, but are nonetheless trying to find the good life. What's your sense of these attempts? You know, I'm, uh, I'm very thankful uh, for so much wisdom that is in the world from so many thoughtful people, from neurologists to psychologists to counselors. And I read very widely uh, in ancient sources as well as modern sources. Uh, there in Melbourne, there's a, there's a group that was started by one of my favorite non-Christian philosophers, Alan, Alain de Beton, uh, who is called the School of Life there in Melbourne. It's in London and other places as well. And, you know, when I read their books, I've read five or six of their books and his books. 
I find much wisdom in them. I think there's a ton of help there. From a Christian perspective, as a Christian, I would describe that as what the ancient Christians would as well, that these are all refractions of the true truth of, of the world, that God, because I believe there's a singular personal God who has created all things and all humans are made in his image. I think all humans have some sense of goodness and rightness about them. They know that when they see it, they, they can perceive beauty and goodness when they see it. And I think as a Christian that the Holy Scriptures and the church's tradition reveal the, the fullest version of the truth. But I still think there's much to be learned from, from other sources. And the, uh, the analogy I often like to use with my students and people in my own church is that, you know, if you think of the world as a forest or many forests, there is great wood in every forest to be gathered. Now, as a Christian, I have a particular uh, quality control of the, of, the for, of the lumber that I gather. That is that I think the scriptures, in my case, the Bible kind of determines what's, what's good wood and what's not good wood. But I believe God is in control of the whole world. And so I'm happy to learn from the wisdom of other people outside of my faith, um, things that are a refraction of, of what's true of God still as well. All, you know, for me, understood and, and uh, filtered through what this, the Christian scriptures teach. Now, one option some people go for is, look, Jesus was a great moral teacher, and the subtext of that is that was all he was. So, you know, they remove the supernatural element to the Jesus story. I think the Jefferson Bible uh, was a classic sort of example of that. Is that closer to the philosophical option? I mean, what does it get or not get about Jesus when it does that? Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I do believe that Jesus is speaking truth that is true for all people. That's certainly true. And that the Bible has principles of wisdom that will help people live well. But the reason you can't do the Jefferson Bible, and I did, I'm interested to hear that uh, that's so well known outside of the United States even. Uh, but the reason you can't do the Jefferson Bible approach or just sort of cut out the parts of the Bible that are just moral, the parts of Jesus that are just moral and get rid of the supernatural is because that's not how the Bible presents itself. I mean, Jesus himself would not be comfortable and would not support that sort of reading of him because for him, the truth of who God is and who he is, is deeply embedded and is organically related to what he's teaching. He's not just teaching general moral principles. The Christian understanding is that he himself is truth and he is the true arbiter, the true speaker of all truth in the world. And so it's not sufficient to just make him one of many sources of wisdom. The Bible understands him as the true wisdom of God. And so you can learn things from the Bible, but if you're really going to read the Bible as it was intended and read the Bible for what it's really saying, you have to read it theologically, not just morally. You have to recognize it's making claims uh, about truth that are more than just uh, moral or can be extracted from the story of the Bible. Yeah, but in the same way as you said earlier, uh, you believe a kind of a truth that sort of permeates all of the world. And so it's, you know, even the best parts of that that aren't religious are nonetheless refracting something of that truth. Couldn't you pick up some of Jesus' wisdom and take it with you and make your life a bit better, even if you don't accept the supernatural claims? 
Well, that's what I was saying. I mean, I think you could in some ways, right? I mean, yeah. or think of the Old Testament book of Proverbs, for example. There's a lot of just wisdom uh, there. And I think uh, Jesus's teachings about being humble and, you know, various things that's certainly true. But again, you're not going to get very far uh, in life with only those sort of level of principles, because the things Jesus really addresses about happiness, both now and forever, his ultimate teachings along those lines are uh, pretty radical and actually pretty shocking. For example, the very first teachings of the New Testament, what we call in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, maybe people have heard of these before, um, everything he says about what it means to be truly happy, which is what Beatitudes are about, what is flourishing like, they are not something that you and I would want to really adopt. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they right. speak about suffering and persecution, being misrepresented, having poverty of spirit, being hungering and thirsting for things to be set to right. So, you know, those are, that's the deeper level teaching of Jesus. That's not just kind of general universal wisdom. These are things you, you have to really face. And to use the great old idea from C.S. Lewis, if you're really going to adopt Jesus' teachings, you know, he's, He's either crazy or just a, you know, just a radical out of control guy, or he's speaking the truth. You can't, or he's trying to deceive people. You can't really just adopt him and think that he's just giving this sort of nice, happy platitudes of life. Mm. He's giving radical teachings. You must die. You must take up your cross. You must follow him. You must live in a whole different kinds of relationships with other people than you have before. So it's not very natural, I guess is what I'd say no. at the end of the day. And and the way you're describing it, not very appealing. No, I think not. What's the what's the good bit of that? Well, that's the paradox. I mean, this is the <laughs> paradox of Christianity that actually we do find life when we die. Christianity is a fundamentally paradoxical beauty in that it's saying that life is found through dying to self. Joy is found in the midst of suffering. Firstness, being exalted, is found in the midst of humbling yourself. Being in relationships of love or having relationships that are satisfying are found in not just seeking your own satisfaction, but seeking the satisfaction of the other. Everything about the beauty of Christianity is paradoxically uh, wonderful. And it really, you have to follow in his ways to see it and to taste it and to know it in the way that he teaches. In your reading of psychology and uh, other contemporary works, are you finding anything of that paradox? I mean, I've seen this a little bit where people are starting to say, actually, the secret to happiness is service of others. That's a good point. Or you think of like Brene Brown and and great insights about vulnerability. What I would say to that is that's what Christianity has been saying all along. I mean, this is the (laughs) point is that you have a very ancient tradition of wisdom that embraces this paradoxical truth that it's now taking some psychologists and others to sort of say, wait a minute, the way we've been telling you or the natural way you think of the happiness is, isn't really true. And what I would say is, again, those are refractions of the true truth that is manifested in the Christian faith. Can I ask you about Easter? What on earth does dying on a cross have to do with being a great philosopher? Well, this is, again, why uh, the Christian faith is an integrated whole. That is that Jesus is teaching wisdom and he is inviting us to to follow in his ways so that we might find flourishing now. But you can never separate that from the fact that all the wisdom of the world, all our practices are never going to deal with what the Bible says is our greatest ultimate issue. 
and that is that in our very nature, we are broken, that we are rebellious against God the King, and that we don't have the power in ourselves to, to do and sustain good. We can do little good things, but we can never sustain good in our own selves. And so the whole idea of the death on a cross and the resurrection at Easter is that God has entered the world and has inaugurated or begun a new age, the final age of the world, in which the Spirit of God himself comes upon people, Christians, and empowers them to actually live and experience true human flourishing. So that's why you really ultimately can't separate Jesus' moral teaching from the death, the crucifixion, and Easter, because it's the death and resurrection of Jesus are what enables people by becoming Christians to actually live the truly good life. That's a hard sell these days. That's a wild <laughs> story. Um, it's always been that, right? But you know, what's your sense of a, a you know a kind of modern Western person's understanding or assessment of that claim? That's a very fair observation. And what I would say to anyone who would ask that, and to my own children and others, is what Jesus says: "Come and see. Come and see. Come follow, and listen." and pay attention to yourself, pay attention to my teachings, and see if they don't make sense of your life in a way that you haven't been able to make sense of your life before. And so come and see, I think is what Jesus would say, come and follow, and you'll find that he's speaking the truth. Has that been your experience? You've kept in the supernatural elements of the Jesus story. What's it personally meant for you? Yeah, it's great. So I was um, a convert to Christianity. I became a Christian when I was an 18-year-old after a life of a lot of drugs and heavy metal and <laughs> a very different life. And I, I always think of what the Apostle Peter says to Jesus in the Gospel of John chapter 6, when after a lot of people stopped following Jesus because the things he was saying were too crazy sounding, like you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And so a whole bunch of people stopped following. They said, this is too weird. This guy is too weird. And Jesus turns to his own followers, his disciples, and he says, are you going to leave as well? And the Apostle Peter says, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. And I can say for the last 33 years of my life uh, that that is what I have found as well, that no one else has the words of life and consistently has empowered me to continue to make sense of my own life, make sense of others' lives, make sense of this complicated world. I've come and I've seen and I've found no one else has the words of life like Jesus. And it's probably a straight line, well-worn path from heavy metal to New Testament studies, right? <laughs> yes, probably so. There's probably a lot of us. <laughs> uh, lastly then, should we study Jesus alongside Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Locke and others? Yeah, especially the ancient philosophers. I like them better than, the, than the, some of the later <laughs> people you mentioned. Um, well, again, the reason I wrote this book and the reason that I would say yes to that is when you study philosophy you recognize the best philosophers are really asking very important questions. They're asking super practical and some big ideas and some really practical questions about what it means to be human, how do you live well, relationships, emotions, all these sort of things. And so my contention, my suggestion to you all is that when you go to the Bible, when you go to Jesus with those same set of questions, you are going to find remarkably thoughtful remarkably practical 
remarkably beautiful answers to those same questions. So I think the advantage of reading other philosophy is that it helps you sort of frame questions and think about things and then to turn to the Bible and see, wow, the Bible really has a lot to say about these very same questions. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. And me, Natasha Moore. Thanks today to Jonathan Pennington. His book on this topic is Jesus, the Great Philosopher. And thanks also to Julian Bagini and his willingness to shed some light on his book, The Godless Gospel, Was Jesus a Great Moral Teacher? Well, thanks for being with us. We'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or review. We like to read these and it helps people join the Life and Faith community. And we hope you have a great and meaningful Easter. We'll be taking a couple of weeks off when we return. One thing that I've registered as I've studied Austen more and more is the way that she really subverts systems from the inside. So she writes about these heroines who will not do what society tells them they should do. So someone like Elizabeth Bennet, who will not marry Mr. Collins, even though it's the logical thing for her to do. She will not even marry Mr. Darcy, even though this would be the scoop of the century, right? She goes her way and she walks away from this life that has been laid out for her by others.